0: Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. You can learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us on Sunday mornings at El Dorado High School in the Performing Arts Center at 9 and 11 a.m.
1: You know, sometimes we run late just so that we can listen to the songs. And this is one of those days. I want to say good morning to everybody except for this section right here. Hey, we're glad you're here. My name's Mike. Welcome uh, to Vox Community. Um, We are big fans of uh, of folks that have questions, and the questions we're getting are absolutely ridiculously incredible, and they keep upping their game, and they keep getting longer, and they keep requiring podcasts and teachings and so much time. So we're just going to go right into the questions this morning. So good morning, Mike, Vox. Here we go. Fire it up. There's the number. Uh, A couple of these are very, very serious, so be careful. Number one, you've often joked about Southern California's reaction to weather, in quotes, over the years. My wife of a year and a half and I went on a walk the other night in a frigid 66 degrees. She had a beanie and leg warmers on. These were real leg warmers, apparently. My question, do you know anyone in SoCal that owns or wears leg warmers? There's a lot writing on this answer. Now, my I, I need to know for my Catholic friends how long is a, an annulment an option? Because I, I would say if you've only been married a year and a half, it's it's not going to work. If if 66 degrees requires a beanie and leg warmers, I really think that you will be divorced in the future, and um, I just I, I want to spare you that grief, and so I think. I I just think if you didn't know this going in, it's false advertising, and uh, I know some great divorce attorneys. So So there you go. No one's finding this funny. I find this very funny. You're like, no, no. That's funny. All right, here we go. No, I don't know anyone that owns leg warmers in Southern California. Okay, great. Skinny women do. That's fantastic. The temperature of, of things should never be determined by you, okay? The hotter person always determines the AC. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Listen, I'll, we'll go to war on this, all right? See, do you see what I'm trying? I'm trying. 66 degrees and a beanie and leg warmers. You see, I'm, I'm just trying to prevent this. Oh, it could be a catastrophe. All right, next. I really thought my answer to that was funny and no one else did. This might be a weird question, but after the sermon last week, we talked about communion. It made me think about my own heart when I take communion. Even as a Christian, sometimes I don't want to take communion because I feel unworthy or I feel far away from God. Instead of wanting to come to the table, I want to just sit stubbornly in my chair and do nothing. Is it wrong to skip communion, or should I just suck it up and go in obedience to God? P.S., it has nothing to do with gluten, I promise. (laughs) Sincerely confused Christian. Oh, I love it. Okay, is it wrong to not take it? No, it's not wrong to not take it. I mean, there's no command that says you got to take it every week. However, if the reason you're not taking it is because you don't feel worthy, then on those weeks most particularly, you need to take it. Because it is precisely at that moment that you appreciate it for the grace that it is. Anytime, I would, I would actually flip it and say, anytime you feel worthy, be, be careful. If you feel unworthy, that is exactly, exactly, exactly the humility that Jesus is looking for. So, so please hear me. Please hear me. There is no one worthy that comes to that table. Sometimes we come out of obedience. It's just, God, I'm here to honor you. Sometimes we come out of need. God, I need to be reminded. Sometimes we come because we're declaring that God's grace is big enough. And that's what that is. If you come feeling unworthy, that is precisely why this is a gift and not a requirement. So I love that. I'm sorry you feel that way. So, and, and listen, sitting stubbornly in your chair, I think we all understand that. We get that these are comfy chairs but if it's the unworthy bit man i want to go to war against that and so does jesus because that is so not of him great question next hey mike when i was growing up the non-denominational church talked all the time about the prayer right the magic prayer you know this you know the one about jesus coming into your heart which is interesting the bible never uses that language Well, now I have a six-year-old who hasn't prayed the magic prayer, and parents are asking if she has prayed the prayer. I read about friends who celebrate their prayers on social media. I just don't think faith operates this way. Could you break this down? Where did the salvation prayer philosophy come from? Should I be worried about my child's salvation? Are there any books I can read to help me understand? Was that? Okay, that must be it. Okay, first of all, praying the prayer means nothing if it is not followed by a deep and progressively growing faith and allegiance to Jesus. In other words, there is nothing in the New Testament that simply says, pray a magic prayer and you're in. And then you could have nothing to do with Jesus the rest of your life and you've gotten in simply because you were six years old and you said some magic words. That is not in any way, shape, or form, how faith is presented or salvation is presented in the New Testament, correct? It is indeed grace, but it is through faith. And faith is not an intellectual word. It is a trust word. It is an allegiance word. It is a confidence word. It is an action word. And so, yes, in the same way that I can sit before... uh, How can I be over time already? In the same way I sit before... Um, like a, a, a pastor, and I repeat words, and I'm now I'm married. That marriage is only real insofar as we then live as a married couple in allegiance to each other. It doesn't matter if we said the magic words or not, right? So there's a sense in which you're absolutely right to rev- revolt against the philosophy that says pray the magic prayer. I've seen God use that, and absolutely, absolutely we invite people to do that. But at, at six, like, I don't know, I've probably prayed the magic prayer 800 times, right? I mean, is there ever a reason to stop praying, Jesus, come, invade my life? I mean, I, I just go, no, I, I pray that all the time. Secondly, six-year-olds six year do not understand what exactly that means. So my kids, my kids have been baptized like two or three times. They were baptized once because everyone else was doing it, and I'm, okay. And then they were baptized again when they understood it. And, and I'm not going like, to punish them for that. So if they want to pray the prayer, great. If they don't want to pray the prayer, great. I told my seven-year-old when he was seven, hey, if you don't follow Jesus, I will love you anyway. I want you to follow Jesus. I hope you follow Jesus, but you can't follow Jesus because I want you to. You have to come to believe it yourself. And now as an almost 14-year-old right he he is beginning to now place faith upon himself meaning that don't worry about whether your 6-year-old has prayed the prayer or not and don't worry about keeping score with other parents what the heck See, that is just a completely, I mean, I want to spend the next half hour beating up on that way of looking at faith. That is not how this works. So you are right to be skeptical, and please do not feel pressure to have your six-year-old pray the prayer so that you can celebrate it on social media. I just disagree with that entirely. If you want to guarantee that your kid, kids will walk away from the faith, make sure that you force them into it as often and as early as possible. Right? Oh, so good. Richard B. Hayes. Yep, that's the guy we was talking about last week. Uh, if so, can you rec- recommend one of Hayes' specific works? Oh, my goodness. The Moral Vision of the New Testament, if you want a book on ethics. Echoes of Scriptures in the Gospel, or Paul, if you want something deep and rich. His commentary on First Corinthians is fantastic, too. Boom, next. So if God is outside of time, why can't we pray backwards for the past? Great question. For example, pray that relatives before our time would know and follow Jesus. Pray that those in German concentration camps would not have suffered so much. All right, so let's see if this works. Jesus, I pray that this person would never have asked this question. There you go. Evidently, it works. Evidently, God is in time. Or no, excuse me, he is, yes, outside of time, but he has created human history to be experienced in time, which means that God has, uh, for whatever reason, decreed the linear process of time to be the way in which human history unfolds. So, yes, if we want it, you can pray back. I'm sure God took that into account. I have no idea how that works except to say we have no biblical evidence that retroactive prayer works. We have all kinds of biblical evidence that like ahead of time prayer works. So do it but I think God has decreed that human history is unfolding in a linear manner and because of that I don't know that we have any basis to believe retroactive prayers work except for that one. All right next. Can you share a a bit about the decision-making process for worship songs? Specifically, do you try to choose songs with lyrics that suggest a resolved reality or slash perspective? Next. Often I feel confused, frustrated, even after a church service. That's awesome. That's awesome. Listen, look at me. And I know this is so frustrating to church people. I, I get it. Why do we feel depressed even after going to church? The point of church is not to make you feel better. You understand that? This is not an hour-long hit of adrenaline and spiritual mojo. If you feel wrestling, if, if you've been provoked, if there's tension, that is a great thing. Because that means then the rest of your week is spent chewing and wrestling and working and out. The last thing we want you to do is just wrap a pretty red bow on this thing and then go do your week. The thing we want to happen is that you are chewing on stuff. I don't know how to resolve this. Yes, 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 that is beautiful. And some people hate this. And they'd rather just go to the big shiny lights and the big smoke and the and fantastic. There are hundreds of churches that do it that way. So I get that sometimes you feel confused even after church. Yes. And the quite the counter is, well, can't we do that sometimes? So I don't know where this question is going. What does it look like for you to pick songs that encourage people to submit to the promises of God while also reflecting the truth that many people may feel disconnected from a place of trust, confidence, and general desire to worship? Next. I'm rereading this message, and it's pretty convoluted, but basically, what does it look like to balance trying to bring people to a place of connection to God while also acknowledging that many people aren't at the place and still desire to worship? Thanks. Great question. That is the hardest thing we're trying to balance in our community. Because on the one hand, we don't want to do hype. And so we give great permission for people just to kind of sit and watch. But then when everyone's sitting and watching, Izzy's up here feeling like no one's worshiping. And and so we try to walk this line between engaging folks and giving permission. So we try to pick songs that fit into one of three categories. And, And we've talked about this in the podcast a bunch. Songs of orientation. God is awesome. God is amazing. God is here. God is present. We pick songs of disorientation. Where are you? What's going on? You seem far away. And then we try to pick songs of reorientation, which is, I've been through the valley, and now I understand God's there, and that life and worship isn't found in the absence of suffering, but in its midst. And so so, so as we try to balance our worship music, we're trying to keep those three categories here, because those are the three kinds of people sitting in our community. Some of you are just here because you're like, yes, yes, yes. I just need encouragement today. I need wisdom for today. I need blessing for today. Some of you are here and you're like, my goodness, my life's a mess. I don't understand this, God. This thing, I, I this thing is, I have no clue. And then some of you are here and you're like, man, I know exactly what that feels like. But God is still good. But my declaration that God is good on this side of it is way different than the declaration that God is good on the first side, on the front side of it. Make sense? So we're trying to do something that I have not tried to do at other uh, places, which is try to balance some lament, and people just aren't used to it, some disorientation, some non-hype, along with some of the classic sort of declarative worship songs. Does that make sense? Does that help a little bit? All right, I don't know if we have any more. Is it possible for us to ruin God's initial plan for our lives? Oh, my goodness. Well, yes, absolutely. But it depends what you mean by initial plan. If God's number one plan for you is to be in relationship with him, can you thwart that? Well, of course. You can choose to not. If you mean by initial plan, like one spouse, one car, one job, one college, one thing, I don't think God's plans are that specific. So... I think that no, you can't thwart his initial plan in those regards. I think if, if you dated somebody you fell in love with, and then you broke up, and then it's 10 years later, and you're like, oh, did I miss my soulmate? No. There's, no. there's no soulmates out there. There's no just the one person. So I think we spend far too much time trying to discern God's one secret will, as opposed to learning discernment and wisdom as the way the scriptures teach. So is it possible to like reject God's purposes for you? Of course, absolutely. That's why there's so many warnings and encouragements to repent, to submit to God, to follow him, to worship him, absolutely. But you cannot ruin his love for you. You cannot ruin the grace that's extended to you. You cannot ruin how far he will go after you. You, cannot, you can ruin none of those things. Does that make sense? Man, that, these are so good. All right, I hope that's the last one. Tell me that's a... Yes! Matthew chapter 5, let's go. Man, I'm running late. Ten minutes over on the questions. It's your fault. It's your fault. And do you know how hard it is to try to answer questions like that quickly, intelligently, and in, in some way, helpfully? Do you realize the training I had to go through to become like this? All right. We're studying the Manifesto of the Revolution, otherwise known as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. And, you know, at our pace, who knows how long this will take to get us through. Because I know that you remember everything we talk about from week to week. You do not. (laughs) Nor do you care. I want to remind you, We started with these things called the Beatitudes. And instead of the be happy attitudes or things we got to do, this is Jesus declaring who inherits the promises of the Old Testament. And it's the surprising, the meek, the mourning, the persecuted, the so on. And And then he paints this image of those kinds of people being salt and light. And remember, that's not, we're preserving the you know conservative moral order. That means we're reminders of the covenant in the world. Huge, huge, huge responsibility now what he's going to do he's going to do something really complicated and so look at me this is going to be unbelievably boring and when I say that people get mad at me and secondly it's not going to be incredibly relevant to your life but if you want to understand what Jesus is doing you have to understand this So what Jesus does is he takes the two least preached verses out of the Sermon on the Mount, and those are the two most important ones because they set up the critique he's leveling against Pharisaical religion. It's genius. Jesus, I don't know if you know this, he was a very smart man. He knew his stuff. And so so this, guys, this is going to be a bit of a slog, and I love it. Some of you say you love it, but there are others of you whose faces will show that you do not. And that is just fine. Particularly if you worked all night. Did you work all night? Okay, good. That's Heather. She works nights uh, in a hospital. So, you know, sometimes she'll show up Sunday morning and go. All right. Matthew chapter five. If you are new to the Bible, we'll put everything up on the screen. We'll do our best to explain it. One of the things you realize about the Bible is that anyone can pick it up and you can benefit and you can spend the rest of your life studying this thing and there are like endless layers to it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Thus saith the Lord. Now, this, I mean, like, normally you just skip to the lust and anger stuff at this point. But what he's doing here is he's cueing us to the kind of discussion we're about to have, and it's utterly brilliant, but it's going to be a bit of work. So we're going to go one verse at a time. Matthew 5:17. All right. Now, Jesus has been accused because of the unique nature of his ministry. He's been accused of abolishing the law, the Torah, and the prophets. And what that means is he's been been accused of misinterpreting it. He's been accused of nullifying it. He's been accused of not obeying it. Okay, so what Jesus is doing is he's announced blessing upon the least likely, and then he's now going to engage in a systematic defense of his ministry and approach and totally undermine the Pharisaic practices of the day it's beautiful and it's genius all right but good lord this is going to be i know i've warned you enough okay here we go now thick starts. do not think i have come to abolish the word abolish means to cancel out or nullify the law or the prophets remember in jesus's day people were jewish and what they would do is they would engage in these incredibly sweet jewish rabbinical debates And if you wanted to call somebody a heretic in Judaism, you wouldn't use the word heretic. You would say you are abolishing Torah. You are nullifying Torah. You are canceling Torah. What that means is you are wrongly interpreting it. Okay? And that interpretation could be in terms of what you're teaching verbally or in how you're living. Big deal that Jesus is being accused of this. He says, do not think I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. Now, fulfill them doesn't mean like there were all these prophecies and Jesus fulfills these prophecies. The word fulfill means to properly interpret, to show the fullness of God's heart behind the law and the prophets. Okay, so they're antonyms. To abolish is to to misinterpret. To fulfill is to properly interpret. Make sense? Jesus accuses the Pharisees of abolishing the Torah one place in Mark. Go ahead and put that up. Jesus continued to the Pharisees, you have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God in order to honor your traditions. Moses said, this was a command, honor your father and mother and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. So hey, Father's Day is coming up. So just you know, keep that in mind. But you, Pharisees say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is dedicated to God, something called Corbin, then you are no longer then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. In other words, what the Pharisees encouraged people to do was to take money that you would use to honor your father and mother and take care of them when they were elderly, and you could, like declare that devoted to God and keep hold of it. OK? So it was was an oral tradition added on to the real commands. Thus, you what? You nullify the word of God. So that's abolishing the Torah. So Jesus accuses them of this. They accuse him of this. Back to Matthew 5.17. Make sense? Joyful. Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to show them in their fullness. All right? Ah. Next, 518. I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In fact, what Jesus is saying, and he's using hyperbole or hyperbole depending on how you'd like to pronounce it he's using hyperbole to illustrate his commitment to the law he says the 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 smallest hebrew letter i think it's pronounced yod and there's a little thing a kots i think you you put on it it's like this little bitty flourish that you add to it. it's a little spur that you add to it like the smallest most insignificant detail will not pass away from the Torah until all is being shown in its fullness okay now what Jesus is setting up is he's going to show how this whole sucker points to him and is fulfilled in him but do you see he's establishing his commitment you guys are saying I'm here to abolish the law I tell you I'm so committed to it that not even the least bit of it will drop before it's fulfilled makes sense so far Now, other rabbis, later rabbis, said very similar things. So, Jesus, I'm showing you, Jesus is engaging in a very Jewish discussion. The problem with American Christians and reading their Bible is we think Jesus is an American, he's speaking English, and he's talking to us. And that is not what is happening. Jesus is Jewish, he's talking to Jews, and he's having a very Jewish discussion. Okay, and it's so important we start there. So here's some other rabbis, later rabbis, that say similar things to Jesus. Everything has an end. Heaven and earth have an end except one thing that has no end. And what is that? The Torah. Now remember, Torah just means teaching. And was most commonly used to refer to the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus. Another rabbi, no letter will ever be abolished from the Torah. Should all the nations of the world unite to uproot one word of the Torah, they would be unable to do it. So there was this deep stream in Judaism that said, listen, God's word lives forever. The grass will fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever, correct? So Jesus is aligning himself with this stream. I've not come to misinterpret this sucker. I've come to show you its fullness, Are you with me so far? Fascinating, fascinating. When you were shaking your head right there, I thought perhaps that meant, this really sucks. All right, next. Now, this is where it gets weird. Therefore, he's just said the most insignificant detail of the Torah matters, right? Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of the commands and teaches others to Uh, to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches the commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. All right, man, i got to work today. There were 613 commands identified by the rabbis. Some were called light, and some were called heavy. Light commands were the big ones. Excuse me. Light commands were the small ones. Heavy commands were the big ones. Right? Do not murder, light or heavy. Heavy. Let me show you what the rabbis identified as the lightest of the light commands. Okay? This is hilarious. Next. This is Deuteronomy 22, all right? This is the lightest of the light commands, according to the rabbis. If you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on the ground, and the mother is sitting on the young or the eggs, do not take the mother with the young. You may take the young, but be sure to let the mother go, so it may go well with you and you may have a long life. Now, I might have a list that goes dumb commands and commands that make sense, Right? This would be on the dumb side. But later rabbis identified this as the lightest of all the commands because out of 613, sometimes the commands would contradict each other. Right? Do no work on the Sabbath would conflict with someone needs me to help them, and that would require work, as an example. So they were always arranging the commands in hierarchy according to light and heavy. So according to the rabbis, this was the lightest of the light commands, but they thought it was interesting that the same promise of obedience, that it might go well with you and you may have long life, to the lightest command was also, the reward was the same. Next, for one of the heaviest commands, honor your father and mother as the Lord God commanded you, so that you may live long and it may go well with you. Do you see how the same reward for the bird's nest and honoring your parents is the same reward? So the rabbis taught, the good ones taught, that even the smallest commands were worthy of obedience. Why? Well, they use this example because the reward of obedience to the lightest command is the same as the reward for obedience as one of the heaviest commands. Is this making any dadgum sense even remotely? Okay. No from you. Light commands, heavy commands. All right, now rabbis, later rabbis, taught this just the same way Jesus did next. If, speaking of a light commandment which deals with something that is only worth the smallest coin, the Torah has said that it might be well with you and that might prolong your life, how much more will the like reward be given for keeping the weight of your commandments? Right, so there, there, Jesus is standing in a Jewish stream here. Next, the rabbi said, be as careful of keeping a light commandment as a heavy commandment because you do not know the reward given for the keeping of commandments. You don't know if your hierarchy is the same as God's hierarchy. Next. Woe unto us that Scripture gave the same weight to light commandments as to the heavy commandments. All right, so what's the point? The point is that Jesus has been accused of abolishing the Torah, of misinterpreting it. He says, first, I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Second, in fact, I'm going to fulfill even the most minute, the smallest detail of this thing. And again, fulfill doesn't mean like prophetic fulfillment. Fulfill means show the heart of it. Show it in its fullness. And then the third thing he says is, in fact, if anybody doesn't keep the light commandments, they will be called light in the kingdom of heaven right? You cannot disregard even the least of these commands, or you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Are you with me so far? So he's establishing his credentials. It's like, hey guys, I'm really serious about this. Now, look at me. This is where relevance approaches quickly. Here's what Jesus does next, all right? Jesus gives five illustrations Oh, yeah, well, we got, oh, next week we're gonna spend all week on this, just one verse. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom. Oh, my goodness, guys. Okay, the Pharisees were the most righteous, the teachers were the most righteous. I'd be like me saying, hey, guys, unless you're more holy than Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, take the most righteous people you know and then say you've gotta do better than them. This is the key to the whole rest of the teaching because what Jesus is going to do is he's going to show how the deeper righteousness of his kingdom is different than the external superficial righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. (sighs) Okay, I'll do one more thing and then we'll try to summarize, all right? What Jesus is going to do now in the sermon, I know, I know is Jesus is going to give five examples of a weighty commandment and a light commandment juxtaposed together. And Jesus is going to show how the fullness of God's law is shown in the light commandment, not just in the heavy commandment. So let me give you a for instance next. He does five of these. You've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, I've had people tell me, all right, people who are suspicious of the Bible. They're like, really? Anger is the same as murder? Really? Lust is the same as adultery? Really? I mean, that's just, that's just foolishness. And then some people will say, yeah, but Jesus is just showing us that none of us can live up to that standard. And no, that's not what he's doing. Jesus is going to show how a light command, do not be angry, and a heavy command, do not murder, relate to each other. Jesus is showing how he's fulfilling Torah. You've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Is that a heavy command? Yep. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Same thing he says about murder. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister... Which we've all said in our cars is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. So people will say, what is Jesus? What? Really? Calling people names is the same as murdering somebody? That's not what Jesus is saying. Not even remotely. All right, fire this up. Next slide. Here's the light command, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Here's the heavy command, you shall not murder. What is Jesus saying? What is Jesus saying? What does he say? All right, I will answer this question clearly. He's saying that they both matter, and one leads to the other. The light one, breaking the light one always leads to breaking the heavy one. Okay? And the deeper righteousness that God is after is not a righteousness that goes around saying, hey, I haven't murdered anybody. But it's actually a righteousness that cares about the heart posture that leads to murder. Make sense? I mean, we can deal with the murder rate in America by dealing with the anger problem. Would you agree? Yeah. If, if people worked on getting rid of anger, there'd be less murder. So what Jesus... Oh, this is so good. So, so this is... Uh, I'm sorry this is so confusing for some. Next. Now this is a later rabbi who is doing the same thing that Jesus is doing. He who violates love your neighbor as yourself will ultimately violate you shall not hate your brother in your heart and you shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge until in the end he will come to the shedding of blood this is a rabbi who's arguing that breaking the light commandment leads to breaking the heavy one so it looks like this the consequences of sin slope downward so i don't love my neighbor leads to hating him in your heart which could lead to taking revenge which could lead to taking your neighbor's life. Now, again, this is a Jewish discussion. If you're sitting here thinking, well, I hate my neighbors and I'm not going to kill them. Thank thank you. But that's not the point that Jesus is making. Jesus says, I've not come to abolish Torah, but to fulfill it. Number one, it's not going to go away, even in the smallest detail. Number two. Number three, the least commands, if you want to be least in my kingdom, then, then don't pay any attention to the least commands. But I tell you that your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, what's what's he mean by that? Okay, simple. Let me give you five examples. You have heard it said, don't murder. Heavy command. I tell you, if you're angry in your heart, light command, you're subject to the same judgment. That doesn't mean the two things are morally equivalent, right? Murder does have more significant consequences. But he is saying what? That what Jesus is showing, look at me is that the goal of following him is the transformation of the heart and not the modification of behavior. It's not enough to go around not murdering. God's heart for people is to not hate and to not be angry. Do you understand this? It's not enough just going around saying, hey, I never committed adultery and think you're righteous because of that. No, no, no. What's Jesus want to deal with? transform your heart so that lust is where which is where adultery begins is dealt with am i making any dadgum sense a little bit okay well i don't okay all right cuz you keep getting lower in that in that seat i mean there was up, that's where we started and then the longer the thing goes the more horizontal and i don't listen i don't blame you see bria look at i mean that's almost stretched out this, I mean, just even teaching this stuff is thick, let alone trying to hear it. But Jesus is going to do five of these. And these are so misunderstood because people think he's introducing new laws. Okay, so okay, so yeah, murder is wrong, so now anger is wrong. Uh, adultery is wrong, so now lust is wrong. No, 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 no. He's showing what the fullness of God's heart is, and he's doing it in two ways. First way, he is showing that the goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is the transformation of heart. But the second thing he's doing is he's undercutting any basis for self-righteousness. Correct? And the Pharisees' program, at least the way some Pharisees expressed it, was built on self-righteousness. See, if if God's heart is only don't murder, well, okay. Done. Do not commit adultery, okay. Okay done, don't be angry, don't, lu- don't lust, right? don't manipulate your words, let your yes be yes. I mean, do you see what he's done? He's given us the positive picture of what it's like in God's kingdom to be right with him, namely the transformation of heart. What do most Christians settle for? We think it's about transformation of behavior. So even people outside the kingdom will be like, yeah, yeah, it's a bunch of rules. I can't drink now, and I can't have sex now, and I can't do drugs now. And it's like, that's really not the point of the thing. There are plenty of moral codes in the world. Jesus is inaugurating something. I mean, he's really trying to get rid of what makes us religious. The attempt to justify ourselves. And he simply says, no, 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 no. Let me show you God's heart. God's heart isn't just for people not to murder. God's heart really deals with anger. And it's possible, my brothers and sisters, to not be angry. It's possible to not lust. But the church never talks about this stuff, right? Our classes are all about, like, here's how to learn more. No one has ever had a class that says, okay, here's how to overcome anger. Here's a here, here's five-week class on, on how to bless your enemies. Right? We don't do that stuff. We're much more interested in just what we can observe. But not only that, and this is where, man, I get punched. It's not only that he's doing that, but now he's revealing that none of us have any claim of righteousness before God, right? Right? I mean, so I always say, I'm the biggest sinner in this room. And it's true. Physically, it's true. And every other way. Spiritually, it's true. I really am the biggest sinner in this room. I am absolutely, if you think you're unworthy, no, no, I've got, I've got stuff that makes me way more unworthy than you. Don't even try to compete with me. And how can I say that? Well, Paul said it about himself, but how can I say that about me? Simple. All I can observe about you is the externals. And you all look great. You all look very obedient and holy. But what do I know about me? Anger, lust, control, pride. I mean, you just go down the list. That is why Jesus will say things later in the sermon like, hey, 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 if you're going to go confront somebody about their sin, make sure you see their sin as a speck of dust and your sin is like a two by four. Why? Because your sin is the only sin you know for sure. Everything else, well, it, it seems like that's a speck. I mean, do you see if Christians believed these two bits, that the goal is transformation of the heart, not behavior, and that there is no basis for self-righteousness, how different the church would be? Because instead of, I mean, because what are the favorite sins of the American church, right? The white evangelical church. What are the sins that are true of the white evangelical church? Pride, greed, race. Let's just start with, with those three. Where do we, what do we never hear sermons about in the white American church? Those things. What do we hear sermons about? Well, sexual sins, cultural issues that we're not dealing with, Right? It's just funny to me how the double standard so easily take shape in my heart and in ours. Because guess what? We rank the commandments too. So I think, hey, porn, that doesn't hurt anybody. That's not an affair. Right? Anger and bitterness in my heart. Pff, it's not like I'm violent towards that person. And what Jesus is doing is he's coming in and inaugurating a movement that doesn't want to deal with whether or not you smoke or whether or not you had too much to drink last night. He wants to deal with what sits in our hearts, which is far more scary. And when that is dealt with, all oh, the behavior takes care of itself. It's like dieting, my brothers and sisters. It's not enough for me to flee ice cream Oh, it's so difficult. It's so difficult. I want to get to the place where I love broccoli. Do you understand the difference? I'm not at that place. I'm not even close to that place. But do you understand? It's not enough just to say, nope, 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 nope. It's a far different and better thing to say, oh, yeah, that's, that's it. See, what God wants to transform is your Desire. And no one ever talks about that. It's not just your behavior, but that you actually want the things that God wants. Now we're cooking. And behavior takes care of itself, correct? So, I have no idea on the relevant scale if this made any sense. But it's so important, we're going to go into anger, Uh, well, we'll go into righteousness next week, and then we'll go into anger, and we'll go into lust, and it's very easy to turn all this stuff in just into more law. That's not what Jesus is doing. These are illustrations of something far bigger, and it's this. So, worthy of our time today, but I have a headache. So, no, it's all right, and i got to teach it again. So I'm going to Pray. As he's going to come out, we're going to do our thing. We're going to sing a bit. Uh, we've got a story to tell. We're going to celebrate at the table. Um, but I want to just, I, I want to spend a moment just praying God would speak to us. Father, this is, this is th- at least for me, it's thick stuff. And it's stuff that reminds me of how thin my Christian life turns out to be that so much of it early was spent on just sin management and behavior adjustment. And all this time, you've really been going after what lurks in the deep recesses of my heart. And so, Father, um, to that end, I pray that your Spirit would come and show us what's in our hearts. You would search us and test us. And rather than leading to condemnation, because we know, Father, in your kingdom, there is none for those in Jesus, that that would lead us to a humility and a tenderness and a kindness as we see ourselves in the biggest sinner in the room. And so, Jesus, we take our lips and our bodies now and orient them to you in the name of Christ. Amen. This is Wes. Wes, come on out. Say hello to everybody. Nine o'clock, Wes. Hello. Take it away.
0: All right. Uh, much of my life and story has been about um, a search for a home. For most of my life, I struggled with depression um, and always felt like an outsider. As a child um, and adolescent, I struggled with suicidal thoughts. Um, the origin of this started you know, in the first few years of my life. I am the middle child of three boys, so middle child. Um, but on top of that, after I was born, uh, I lived with my grandparents in Taiwan for two years while my brother and my parents were here. Um, I never thought anything of this growing up because growing up in an Asian household, lots of things weren't normal um, than what I saw on TV. If you ever watch the show Fresh Off the Boat, uh, that's my life. Um, <laughs> I grew up listening to a lot of hip-hop and R&B, so I'm like the little kid. Um, but one thing that I knew wasn't normal was that I felt like I didn't belong in my family. Mm. Um, I felt like an outsider, I just didn't connect. Um, and a significant piece was I didn't feel close to my mom. Um, partly was the fact that she wasn't super naturally maternal or attentive, um, but other things added to it. You know, culturally, you know, seeing my friends and how close they were to their family, and mom, um, and also how much mothers were revered in culture and on TV and things like that. I just felt like I was different, and you know I felt guilty because I didn't have that relationship, and I also didn't really know it was possible or even even really want it. Um, I came to later realize that you know through therapy that my grandma really was my mom, my mother figure in my life, because she was the one that was with me when I was when I was a baby. Um, and I had a ton of affection towards her, um, but one of the things that would, the dynamics that would cause, that kind of caused a lot of internal stuff was um, anytime I would show affection to my mom, my, she would, or to my grandma, my mom would be upset and it caused tension in the house. So quickly I soon to shut that down. Um, and, you know, I shut down the desire for nurture, for love, and I became independent and as, a, as autonomous as any seven or eight-year-old could be. Hmm. Um, but that left me feeling alone and isolated, I'm mean, gonna end up creating an island for myself. Um, it spun me into what my therapist calls dysthymia, um, which, is a type of, which is a type of functional depression. Um, I couldn't be totally out of commission because as a good Asian I need to still get good grades. Um, so, um, but, the, but depression basically made me feel lifeless on autopilot and asleep to my life. I remember thinking as a eight year old, if I died, no one really would even care or even notice. So why bother? Um, fast forward to when I became when I came to Christ right after high school. Um, I was only Christian in my family, and one of the biggest struggles I had was believe, was was believing in experiencing God's love for me, um, and acceptance of me. Of course, He would love others, but does He really love me? Um, and my suicidal thoughts transformed into fantasies of wanting to die so the loneliness and pain would go away um, and that, you know, I could be in heaven. Um, The theme of not fitting in also followed me in church. Um, I found myself at a lot of white churches and, you know, part of the kind of Christian subculture, but I always didn't feel white enough or cool enough to be part of that subculture. I thank God for that now. But in the midst of it, <laughs> uh, you know, it was painful because I felt like an outsider. And I didn't feel connected to even Asian churches. Um, you know, I spent nine months in Taiwan after college um, as a missionary. And even there, I wasn't Taiwanese enough. I was still American. So I was still an outsider, even amongst, you know, what would be my culture. Um, but, you know, even, I felt like an outsider even in the body of Christ. Mm. Um, and so a turning point in my life with respect to, to God and my depression was, you know, after I spent the time in Taiwan, I decided to go to seminary. <laughs> uh, I went to Biola, or Talbot, and in the Institute of Spiritual Formation. Hmm. I never wanted to be a pastor, but I, got, I felt God calling me to go, and I wanted to help people. Um, I was also drawn to a lot of the monastics, like St. John on the Cross, Thomas Merton, Henry Nouwen. probably because I'm so used to being alone, so I just was drawn to that. Um... So that's what drew me to the program, but I also felt like I needed to figure out this depression and anxiety stuff from, for me, and a lot of the, the program is kind of that kind of soul work that you really work through. Um, but the highlight of the program for me was going on a three-week solitude retreat, where for three weeks, I was in a house in Washington um, alone, and I would spend about an hour and a half a day with the, with, the, with the counselor, kind of basically saying everything I ever wanted to say to the closest people to me. Um, there were a lot of cussing and screaming and tears, um, and, and anger. that was just the counselor. What, that? <laughs> um, but in the end, it was a turning point in my life. Um, I actually confronted the pain and faced the demons that kept me asleep and depressed all these years. It changed the trajectory of my life for the better. Mm. Um, digging in and feeling and digging digging in and through the trauma and pain of my childhood was like breaking up the hard soil of my heart and soul, so that things could actually grow. I found that my pathway out of depression was speaking the truth in love, expressing myself more freely and becoming more present internally and externally to those around me. Um, I wanted to be and I needed to be a whole person even before I could really interact with God because the person that God loved wasn't this person that had it all together or that put up the shield, it was actually the wounded child part of myself.
1: That's
0: right. um, it's still an ongoing process. Um, but I've I found the less ashamed I am before God and others, the more I'm able to live in the light of God's love and be more present with others. And with that speaking in truth and love, I also was critical of the American church and its Christian subculture for its ineffectiveness, mainly for all the energy spent on keeping up with the appearance, appearance of niceness, but lacking in real character change and fruit, kind of like what you're talking about today. That's awesome. Um, Being out of touch with reality and operating out of fear of the unknown and lacking the courage to try to understand those not like you. To be vulnerable and not put together, which is something that will actually connect with real people struggling and make Jesus look more beautiful. Mm. Uh, What I love about Vox is there's no pretentiousness, but more a collection of messed up people trying to work this stuff out and walk with Jesus. And I love that you model this for us. (laughs) Uh, Much of of my story has been... uh, A search for home, you know, when I was really depressed, I longed to die so the pain would be gone and everything could be made right and be home with God. Mm. But as I've grown, even though my depression still comes and goes, my relationship with my mom is still not great, and I still find myself feeling like an outsider a lot of the time, I don't necessarily see those things as a negative. If anything, those things have made me who I am and God has used it. The more connected I am to my own pain um, is the more empathetic I can be to those in pain and marginalized around me and more active in my role of practicing the ministry of reconciliation. Come on. I don't, I no longer want to die so that I can be home, but I want to make my home right where I am to remain awake and help do the work to actually bring heaven to earth. I truly want to live.
1: Come on. Wow. No, no, hugs. We hug in here. I don't know how you do it in Taiwan. Bro, that was great. Oh my goodness. Dang, that's the stuff. That's the heart of our church right there. There it is. So um, what we do now is in response, uh, we do our own work and we have our own honesty. And so we invite um, everyone to the table and uh, gluten-free invitees are over there. Uh, But everyone else, worthy, um, (laughs) unworthy, unworthy, Walking, celebrating, dancing, crawling, uh, however you come, Jesus receives you. And, um, and also we take prayer requests over on these wood boards. You can just take some parchment and write down some stuff, good or bad, that's going on. And we're honored to pray for that, to celebrate with you. Or to grab a bit of the robe of the prayer shawl that just symbolizes our desire for healing, the way that a woman grabbed the hem of Jesus' robe. And then we have participation boxes around the room for those of you that are warring against consumerism and fighting for generosity. But this is our time. This is the, kind of the point of the service, that we come and celebrate the table together. Uh, because we're, the table is the only thing big enough to hold a collection like this of people of various backgrounds, various political beliefs, various the- theological differences. It's the only thing big enough to hold us together. And so, I want to pray, and then Izzy hopefully will do all her songs now. It'll be glorious. She'll yell at me between services. Lord, forgive Izzy for her anger in her heart. (laughs) That can can lead to murder. We just don't want any of that. (laughs) Oh, man, Wesley's story. I think we all can relate to that image of having our hearts sort of broken up so that something can grow. And help us, Father, to open ourselves to the work of your Spirit in that regard. And so we come now, we sing, we worship, we pray, we ask, we cry out, we take the cup and we take the bread. And we do it, God, to open ourselves up to you again and again and again. So in the name of Jesus, we come. Amen. Well, hey, everybody, Let's go ahead and stand up. Let's wrap this up because we've got raining down. I mean, it's a good day for leg warmers. Ladies, it's a good day for leg warmers, right? Okay, bless you. I'm, you know, I got to say, I am super impressed that more of you are not asleep in bed right now. I'm just, I was thinking, I mean, I think I've lowered my expectations uh, to the point where I thought maybe there'll be 30 people here. Look at you, look at you. It's fantastic. If you're new, yes, clap for you. Clap for you. You did it. God smiles. If you're new, man, I am so sorry. It's a tight ship. We'll do a better job next week. I promise. We'll just we'll get better. Um, anyway, if you want to find out more about us, go to VoxOC.com. We've got a new to Vox dinner coming up at our house, uh, I don't know, several weeks or so, and you can find out more about what we're about, and, um, I think, is next week's Father's Day? Father's Day? All right. So it'll be light. Mother's Day is traditionally like all the moms are dragging, uh, dads. What do you want for Father's Day? I want to sleep in and not go to that bald guy. So, um... To entice you, we're having a, and it's been a while, a shaved-eye social. It's a shaved-eye social again. Uh, So that's that's a big deal, guys, around here. Um, Other than that, go in God's mercy and grace. Let me pray for us as you go. Say hello to somebody as you leave. There's some really nice people around here. I know, it's shocking. Um, But uh, let me do our blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance to you. And may He give you peace in these days. Amen and amen. Thank you, my brothers and sisters. Great, great morning. I'll talk less next service. It'll be glorious. Rain down. Leg warmers. Rain down. Rain. We need more mohawks around here. Mohawks. We need more of
0: them. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.